You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. McDonald's Play Place, Berwyn, Illinois. In high school, I worried that my friends and I had normalized vomiting. It was occurring every time we hung out. A friend would puke in some antique vase or unused aquarium. They never puke in the sink or toilet, by the way. It's always the biggest vessel in your house not connected to plumbing. And it was odd to me that none of us found this odd. Years later, I had a kid and learned we were mere amateurs. I discovered there is no wino, no hopeless barfly, no troubled celebrity that will ever puke more than the average toddler. Kids puke constantly. And that's because at the end of the day, kids fucking party. You have never, even at the height of your college years confidence, shown up to a party with a fraction of the nerve that a kid does. A child will walk past a dozen adults, all looking for hugs, and say, I have no memory of you. Then reach the end of the room, turn, and ask, So where's this bouncy house? My kids will run up to me at a party and say, Hey, my best friend, um, I forgot their name. It's someone they met ten minutes ago, by the way. But, well, they want to come over sometime. So I, I, I need to know where we live. We live in Oak Park. What? I thought we live in America. Oak Park is a city, and and before you can explain it further, they interrupt. Hmm. Huh. That feels weird. And they hold their stomach for a second, and that's all the warning you will get. A momentary rub of the stomach, and then they let loose and vomit like a garden hose set to jet. Once you are past your first kid, you learn to recognize the twitch, the warning, the way a mongoose knows when a snake is about to strike. And you get out of the way, or you pick up the kid and you point them away from the carpet and the furniture. Almost like they're a blender that's running without its top on, and you are redirecting stains to a preferred, cheaper place. When kids are done vomiting, much like a drunk, they show zero remorse. A few seconds of silence will pass. Then they break the tension with something along the lines of, I may have had, I may have had too many brownies. How many did you have, you'll ask? What comes after ten? Eleven. I had two elevens. On this occasion, my family was visiting from Ohio. And due to a nearby factory fire, our house lacked power for several hours. We took the kids to a McDonald's with a play place for breakfast to entertain them while we waited for the zoo to open. The adults were mostly occupied with using the restaurant's Wi-Fi since we had not been online for half a day due to the power outage. And that's when we heard it. 
A child's shriek. The grossed out kind. The kind that usually means one of these families is gonna leave a lot sooner than they were planning. Oh my god, yelled one of our kids. I can't believe you did that. Right here? Of all the places? We looked up and saw kids jumping out of the play structure, which seemed three stories tall, like their lives depended upon it, as if they were leaping from the burning wreck of the Hindenburg. What's going on? My sister asked. John just took a shit in the attic of the playground, her oldest answered. Somehow, kids know to wait until the most public moment possible to reveal that they know a particular swear word. They never let the word slip privately in the car. It's always when your boss or three generations of your family is visiting that they decide to debut a new vulgarity. What? My sister replied. Shit, her youngest explained. It means feces. You might know it as, and he changes his voice to impersonate an adult, a bowel movement. I know what it means, Connor. By this point, the besmirched John had now descended at his own leisurely pace, and it alighted onto the ground. John, what happened? Somebody asked. That did not go like I planned, he answered. I thought it was a fart, he said, gesturing to the back of his pants, and then began the lizard-leg walk of a person who had just made a great mistake. Jesus, said his dad. We looked into the corner of the play center where there was a McDonald's employee who was sweeping the floor with a broom had overheard everything. We gave him a kind of, what's the protocol here, look, and before we could even form a real question, he announced, unsolicited, I make $7 an hour. This is one of my favorite dead-end job responses. When a customer asks you to go unreasonably past the requirements of your job and you immediately silence them by letting them know your salary. Jesus, my brother-in-law murmured again. This is something my dad would also do when one of us upset or disappointed him profoundly. He would stare into the distance, repeating, Jesus, every few seconds. Almost like he was reviewing every decision in his life that had led to him hearing the news he was presently hearing. Hey, my sister screamed, breaking him out of his trance. Her and my brother-in-law then exchanged that chilly glare you see couples do after one of their children has done something horribly disgusting. That piercing, contemplative glance you trade, attempting to recall who dealt with the last such incident, or who, in general, has to debase themselves most often for the kids. Because if the answer is, I did the last one, or I do this stuff all the time, that means the other person is about to climb up a play center designed for a people a third of their size to clean up their kid's diarrhea. Some couples fight about this, but not my wife and I. We have a floating agreement that because of the people I surrounded myself with during my 20s, my skill set for solving issues of bodily mistakes is uncommonly well-developed. That I am to puking what Liam Neeson's character in Taken is to hostage situations. So therefore, I handle all child-related biological disasters. I do it so regularly that I'm often called upon to walk other dads through it. And so too, in this case. I'll help, I told my brother-in-law as he started to plan his ascent up the play center. But first, I added, we need to grab a lot of napkins, I added as I picked up a nearby napkin dispenser. 
Good idea, he said. And a garbage bag. The trip down will be a lot easier if we have a garbage bag. I began climbing up while my brother-in-law took the mostly empty garbage bag from the nearest bin and joined me. At which point, a different McDonald's employee opened the door and, seeing us start our ascent, admonished us. No one above the age of 12 in the play center, gentlemen. Let them go, said the $7 an hour broom sweeper. Trust me. We showed the new employee the napkins and the garbage bag we were holding, and they immediately put it all together and waved us on. We had worried that it would be difficult to reach the top, that there would be a tube or web of netting we couldn't fit past. But we scaled it easily. The architects at McDonald's had clearly accounted for such eventualities. Realizing that the entire structure would have to be incinerated within 48 hours if they didn't make all spaces large enough for adults to enter for when a child inevitably relieved themselves inside. I wondered how many generations of play centers existed before these adjustments were made. We reached the top and began dealing with the situation. From down below, we heard my sister ask, Is it going to be an easy cleanup? People don't shit themselves with a dry, solid poop, dear. My brother-in-law answered back, as though to convey, No, it's not looking easy up here at the summit. We cleaned it as best we could, descended with our trash, and as we reached the bottom and exited the play center, we noticed all eyes upon us. The two McDonald's employees, my sisters, my wife, and some new lady and her two kids who had also been forced to seek refuge under the golden arches due to this power outage. Is it cleaned? My sister asked my brother-in-law. We should leave a tip, was his answer, which everyone correctly understood to mean that top floor is still disgusting, and it's going to take a lot more than two dads with napkins to solve it. The new lady was the first to react, grabbing both her kids by the arms and yanking them back towards their car, snapping, This is why I never go to McDonald's. My sister looked at the employees, who would probably have to sort out the rest of it, and came closer to us, asking, What's the appropriate tip for this kind of situation? All of it, my brother-in-law answered. All the cash we have. They have to get a mop to the top of a jungle gym. We left McDonald's and were heading back to our place, wondering who should stay home with John while the rest of us went to the zoo. Why? John wondered. I feel fine now. I just need to poop. This is the area where the analogy of kids acting like drunks doesn't align well. Because, unlike drunks, kids return to being totally normal after shitting or puking all over a room. It's miraculous. It's as though they've expelled a demon from their body with the food. My kids will pace around, whining at a party. When are we going to leave? Do we even know these people? Then puke into a piano. And when I rise to apologize and leave, they quibble, Whoa, why are we leaving? I'm having a great time. You just threw up into a piano. I feel great now. And Dad, the correct word is vomit. Kids will go to a party, have a dozen fights with other children about toys, fall off a table, get sick from the food, and their first question at breakfast the next day will be, When are we going back there? That was a blast. After the McDonald's debacle, we went to the zoo. John included, and indeed, he was fine for the rest of the day. As none of us wanted to deal with traffic and parking, we took the train, which excited the kids. When the train arrived, we entered, and my sister's youngest boy immediately ran up to the first pole inside the first car, 
stuck his tongue out and licked that metal pole from top to bottom on a Chicago public train that runs 24 hours a day. I've been at sporting events where a grotesque injury happened and the crowd groaned. I've been at stand-up shows where the performer seemed to get each audience member laughing at the same cadence. But I have never heard a more uniformed response than when my nephew licked a pole on a crowded CTA Blue Line car. It was a guttural, Jungian, shared, oh. You know that strep test where the doctor shoves a long swab down your throat until you choke? It was like a hundred people got a simultaneous strep test. My sister cried out, God, no, Connor. Believe it or not, this happens a lot with kids. Where you disagree with their actions so deeply that you find yourself screaming the name of your God before you get to know. If my Catholic parents were disgusted enough with what I was up to, they maybe even got to all three members of the Trinity first. What? Jesus, are you dangling your brother out the window? Holy ghost, goddammit, no! We found some seats and sat down. Everyone was looking at us, holding back laughs. My brother-in-law obviously felt the collective stares because he said, loud enough for the entire car to hear, I wish I could say that was the grossest thing one of my sons did today. <laughs>